Let's, uh, as, as we go to prayer this morning, let me read a couple of verses from Psalm 73. Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, we're so thankful that your word is full of truth which is so encouraging and uplifting. Lord, we know that we fall so short of the glory of God, but we're so grateful that Christ has stood in the gap for us and made us righteous in your eyes by faith. And Lord, we can acquire these promises in the scripture for us, even as we go through times that may be difficult or times that may seem to be smooth sailing. We know, Lord, that our faith and our hope and our trust can only be placed in you. Father, I thank you for each one here this morning and pray you will minister to each heart and each life. For those who are not here this morning for illness sake or some other reason, minister to them too. And particularly, Lord, as we will pray later for those that are off in distant lands uh, doing your work this morning. We're just so grateful, our Lord, that as we move into uh, this year and look forward to the decades ahead, whatever length of time you give to each of us individually, that no matter how dark the clouds may seem, the Son of God is shining on our lives. Lord, help us to reflect the beauty of Christ to those all around us and strengthen our faith and pray that your Spirit will teach us from your Word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Judges, we have just looked at the great victory that God gave to Jephthah and his response to that, which has often been misinterpreted in terms of the offering which he made, and we dealt with that last week. So today, we move on to see what the problems that arise after this. It kind of reminds me of Elijah. After his great victory on Mount Carmel, the enemy came at him like gangbusters, and he was forced to flee off into the wilderness, and here is Jephthah. By faith, he has received or earned in God's strength a great victory. He has granted God a gift in response, and now the enemy is at his gate. So let's read the first seven verses of Judges chapter 12. Then, Amin, then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to, to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to them, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Now say Shibboleth. But he said Sibboleth, for he did not, could not pronounce it correctly. 
Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Another strange <laughs> story from the pages of the book of Judges. Well, news travels quickly, be it good or be it bad. And the news of the victory uh, that was won over the Ammonites has come back across the river into the land of Ephraim. And when they heard the news, they got upset. Certainly somebody whispered to somebody else, you know, uh, they've won this victory and we've gotten nothing from it. And this was spread to others and spread to others. You know how rumor goes. Until pretty soon a big crowd of them gathered together and they crossed over, we're told, the Jordan River to the town of Zaphon. And it happened to be that Jephthah was at Zaphon at that particular time. Now today, <laughs> I don't know how you, if you can see this very well, you see that Jabbok River is right here. It comes right down through the middle of Gilead. Gilead is this region right here. And the tribe of Manasseh is in the north part way up here. The tribe of Gad is in this middle part up here. And then Reuben is down here. So Reuben, Gad, Manasseh. They're on the east side of the Jordan. And Gilead roughly is co-equal with the land of the tribe of Gad. A little bit of it travels over into the Manasseh area. But mostly it's the people of Gad that we're talking about here in this particular thing. So they have crossed over from the Ephraim. You see Ephraim is here. They've crossed over to an area right about mm, up in here. Zaphon is right about up in there. So they've crossed over. A whole army has crossed over into Gilead. And the Ephraimites were very, very angry that they had not been invited, they said, they had not been invited anyway, to be apart or take apart in the destruction of the Ammonites. Their anger was based, I think, in three issues. The first issue, their pride was hurt. You didn't invite us to participate. It's like you didn't care or you didn't think we could help or, you know, we were attacked too. Secondly, they would not experience the satisfaction of having gotten revenge on the Ammonites. Because you may remember, as we read in the 10th chapter, it said that the Ammonites had actually crossed the Jordan and attacked part of the territory of Ephraim and part of the tribe of Judah. So they felt like they had a stake in this whole thing and that they had suffered from the ravages of the Ammonites also. But most importantly, and probably the primary reason is reason number three, and that is they had gotten no share of the booty. They had not gotten any of the good stuff that was taken from the Ammonites by the Gileadites. I mean, they had captured 20 towns, uh, wiped out an army. And of course, in those days, you carried off everything that you could carry off from any captured uh, territory or any defeated people. And they had gotten none of it. Well, in the 11th chapter of Judges and in the 29th verse, we read that Jephthah had called his army together, we're told in that passage, from Manasseh and from Gilead. And in that passage, there's no mention that he issued a call to Ephraim. However, in the 12th chapter that we just read, and in the second verse there, we read that Jephthah said, I called you to come and help me, but you refused to come and you sent no help. There's, there's no reason for us to believe that Jephthah is making something up here. It's just that the passage didn't include everybody that he had called back in the 11th chapter. And so 
according to Jeff, anyway, I sent a call over there and, and you ignored it. You didn't come. And now you're saying that I never called you. Well, does this sound like anything we have talked about in recent weeks? Well, it should. If we backtrack for a few minutes here to the eighth chapter of Judges. Let me read the first few verses of the eighth chapter of Judges, verses one through three of the eighth chapter of Judges. We're talking about Gideon now. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? That's his family. God has given the leaders of Midian, Arab, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he had said that. So here you have the same people, and not the same people, but the same tribe, is now contesting again. I mean, they had felt like they hadn't been a part of Gideon's great victory, except sort of a little end of the mop-up campaign. And in this one, they hadn't been involved at all. But you'll notice how Gideon responded to them. Gideon said, what have I done in comparison to you? You've captured the actual kings. You know, he, he kind of buttered them up and said, you guys really, really did a great job. And, and they, were, they were pacified by that. But in this particular passage, we discover that Jephthah's response is a little bit harsh and somewhat provocative here as he speaks to them. And this reminded me at the time of the passage in Proverbs that is a very hard verse for us to make part of our lives. And that is Proverbs 15.1 where we read, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Now, our, I don't know if it's your problem, but my problem is to stop and think first <laughs> before responding because you know, your natural gut reaction is to, you know, Somebody says something harsh to you while well, you're either defensive or, or aggressive and, and to stop and think, you know, maybe they're having a bad day, you know, could be. This is the enemy at work, so speak softly back to them. But of course, in this particular case, it's very probable that the Ephraimites were in no condition to be pacified no matter what Jephthah might have said. And also, I think it's very probable that Jephthah wasn't too keen on speaking to them in a pacifistic way because they had just said to him, you didn't invite us, so I'm gonna burn, we're going to burn your house right down over your head. I mean, that's a pretty harsh way to refer to somebody. And I, I don't think he was really interested in pacifying them. I think he was interested in uh, just, you know, face-to-face -face confrontation and uh, see what comes out of it. Well, whatever was the case, whatever was the attitude in Jephthah, whatever was the attitude in, in, in the Ephraimites, whatever was their intent and whatever they did to uh, beyond what we read here in this scripture, civil war broke out. Civil war broke out. And civil war, of course, is the most heinous kind of war. We know from our own history how horrible civil war can be when brother is killing brother uh, within their own land. And so it would be here. The Gileadites were brought into conflict with the Ephraimites, and the Gileadites would defeat the Ephraimites, the Ephraimites, of course, being the aggressors. As we read this passage, we get a sense that the Gileadites, now remember, the Gileadites were roughly the Gadites, the people from the tribe of Gad. Maybe a few Manassites were, were included here, too, but mostly it was people from the tribe of Gad. 
and they are defending their land because the Ephraimites have crossed over. The Ephraimites have crossed over from Ephraim over the river and they are now in Gilead. They're in the land of the Gadites. And so they're defending their homeland against these aggressors. And what we discover here is an intense hatred. I mean, it's not like, okay, well, let's, let's duke it out for a little bit, but then let's get this thing over with and patch it all up. It's like, we're going to wipe you guys out completely to the last man. So intense is this hatred that once they have defeated them on the battlefield, they pursue them, they chase them, they want to wipe out every single one of the invaders. I think the root of this hatred goes back, of course, beyond this time, but, but was stirred up by the contemptuous way that the um, Ephraimites referred to the Gadites. Look back in verse 4, if you will, of this passage in chapter 12. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, the men of Ephraim said, You are fugitives from Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. You, you guys are just a bunch of runaways. You're, you're not even full-fledged good people, good Israelites anymore. The commentator Delich interprets this particular passage this way. He says that this is what they said. You are, obscure, you are an obscure set of men, men of no name, dwelling in the midst of two noble tribes, the Ephraimites and Manassites. And here you are in between, and you're a bunch of no accounts is what the implication was. Well, what we discover in this passage is that your accent can be a real problem sometimes. You know, it actually, in this case, is a matter of life and death. All the Israelites, of course, spoke the same language. And they had basically the same appearance, dressing pretty much the same. So how would you know, if somebody's coming down to the river there, that he's not, uh, you know, a Manassite, a Reubenite, a Gadite, uh, wanting to cross the river and not an Ephraimite running from the battle. Well, you wouldn't be able to know under just normal conditions. But the Ephraimites had developed a very bad habit. They had dropped the letter Shin from their alphabet and only spoke with the other form of S, which is Sin, Shin and Sin. So you Sh or S are the two ways of pronouncing that letter or that sound in Hebrew. And so they come down to the river, the River Jordan. And so the men of Gilead say to them, all right, if you say you're not an Ephraim, are you an Ephraimite? Oh, no, you're, you're not an Ephraimite. Okay, well, let's give you a little test here. Say stream, which is, of course, what they had to cross. They had to cross the stream. Say stream, which in Hebrew is Shibboleth. And they'd say, Sibboleth. Wrong. <laughs> it's Shibboleth. You're a dead man. And we're told, as a result of this, 42,000 Ephraimites died. 42,000 people were put to the sword. It's a very high price to pay for a little bit of greed and jealousy. But of course, if you look down through the pages of history, history is littered with the corpses of millions who have died for the same reason. We're told at the end of the passage that I read in verse 7, that Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died, was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. They don't know what city he was buried in, but he was buried on the east side of the Jordan River in the tribal area of Gad. Now, six years, that's not terribly long, is it? 
if his only child was maybe 12 or 13, maybe possibly 14 at the time of the event. I mean, she's 20, maybe, at the most, when her father dies. Let's read on in the 12th chapter, verse 8, to the end of the chapter. Now, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Elon in the land of Zebulon. Now Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite judged Israel after him, and he had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Now Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. This is one of the passages in Scripture where people who are reading through the Bible for the very first time, and maybe they're new Christians or not even Christians yet, they get kind of hung up, and, and you can understand that. Such a passage, of course, is very, very important for Israel because it, it gives a connection, a cost. It gives coherence to the history of Israel and, and connects the leadership together but to us who, who read this uh, without that background, it's like, okay, well, when do we get to something more that we understand? And, of course, we'll get to that when we get to Samson. But here we have three judges, like Tola and Jer, that we talked about a while back in the 10th chapter. Little is said about these three judges in this passage or anywhere in Scripture, for that matter. The question could be asked, did these three judges... These three Shofatim rule sequentially, or did they rule in overlapping judgeships during this period of 25 years? Well, as we read this passage in verse, verses 8, 11, and 13, you may have noticed that it seems to indicate that it was sequential because it says, Now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after Jephthah, or after him, meaning Jephthah. And, and you read down in verse 11, Now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, meaning the Ebzon. So it seems to indicate we're dealing with a sequential thing here. So we're dealing with the next 25 years after the reign of Jephthah. So you have Jephthah's judgeship, now you have 25 more years. So you're talking about a period of 30, 35 years here altogether uh, for these four judges, which, by the way, we're going to discover tend to be simultaneous with the years of Samson. We read about Ibzan, whose name means swift. We're told that he comes from Bethlehem. Now, immediately into our mind comes, oh, I know about Bethlehem. Well, the question is, do we know about Bethlehem? Which Bethlehem is not specified here? Now, Josephus, a man who we can trust, a man who, however, doesn't always interpret things correctly, he claims that this is Bethlehem of Judah. But most Bible scholars say this isn't so. It can't be so. It can't be Bethlehem of Judah. And the reason for that is whenever Bethlehem of Judah is mentioned, it's called Bethlehem of Judah or Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's virtually never just called Bethlehem in the Old Testament without that particular attachment. The only judge that we know of so far 
and, and that will be true of the whole book of Judges, the only judge that we know came from Judah is the very first one, Othniel. And he came from southern portion of Judah. No other judge th that we know of came from the tribe of Judah. Back in the, in the 19th chapter of Joshua, as we read through there, we discovered the reference to Bethlehem of Zebulun. And as we've been looking this, where are all these judgeships occurring? They're occurring in the north and in the east. They're occurring in Issachar and Zebulon and Gilead. None of them are occurring down south. And so it is fitting that this be the Bethlehem, which was located <coughs> up in the uh, Zebulon area, up, right up in here somewhere. The, the exact location is not known because it doesn't exist anymore. But this particular Bethlehem is thought to be the Bethlehem referred to here. Jewish tradition. Now, sometimes there's good reason to go with Jewish tradition, and sometimes there is not. Jewish tradition argues that Ibzon was Boaz of the story of the book of Ruth. But as you read this passage about Ibzon, he had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family and so on. Does that sound like any Boaz you know about? I mean, the Boaz we read about was, seemed like he was a middle-aged man. He was a man who had no wife at the time that the story of Ruth develops, and so he eventually marries Ruth, the Moabitess. I mean, think about it for a minute. How many wives do you have to have to have 60 children? Probably. Certainly Ruth was not the mother of 60 children, and so it just totally does not fit. Ibzan does not fit Boaz at all. And, of course, the idea is that, you know, Ibzan comes from Bethlehem of Judah, therefore it could be that this is Boaz. And Boaz does fit into the time of the book of Judges, but not at this particular point. According to verse 9, we read that he gave away his 30 daughters as brides to people outside the family, and then he brought in 30 ladies from the outside to marry his 30 sons. This was one busy matchmaker, you, you can understand here. And we have to assume that most of this matchmaking must have occurred before he became a judge. Because as we read in this passage, he's only a judge for, what, seven years. Seven years probably wouldn't be doing much judging if he was doing all this matchmaking. So, and, and since the seven years are the last years of his life, he probably had done this before he became a judge. But can you imagine the number of grandchildren he must have had? If you have 60 children and they're all married, chances are, and especially in those days, uh, chances are you've have, had a lot of grandchildren. I, I can imagine that he probably didn't want to be responsible for throwing birthday parties for all these people because he would have been at a birthday party all the time, certainly. We, we read on that Ibzan was replaced by Elon. By the way, there is no other passage in Scripture that mentions one word about these judges that we're reading here. Nowhere. This is the only place you find these individuals mentioned in Scripture. Elon, his name means terebinth, which is roughly equal to oak in our language. And we know even less about him than we do about the, the one preceding him. All we know is that he was a Zebulonite, that he judged for ten years, and that he was buried in Aelon of Zebulon. Now, nobody has a clue where Aelon of Zebulon was located. There are so many terms, uh, I've mentioned this before, there are so many towns mentioned in Scripture that 
are totally unlocatable today. Uh, it's amazing that many have been found, but those that have not continued on through time, like Jerusalem and Bethlehem and many of these, which have continued on to be living cities and their, their location has never been lost, many of these have been lost because if you study the history of Palestine, you discover a land that has been overrun so many times you can't even count it almost. Great powers have tramped back and forth across the land, and it's, the land has been in the hands of, of course, the, the uh, Muslim people for such a long time. And they allowed so much of it to fall into total decay that many, many terms in Scripture are, are not identifiable in terms of their exact location, particularly since the Bible often refers to the name of what is nothing more than a village, maybe a village of only 50 people, kind of like Igor or Ono or something like that, you know. <laughs> what is interesting is Josephus makes a judgmental statement here about these three men. He says they did nothing worry, nothing worthy of memorial. How does he know that? Well, it's because I don't think he knows anything more than what this passage says. And this passage does not say anything about what these people did other than the fact that they were Shofetim. The 11th judge in the history of Israel is described in the 13th, 14th, and 15th verses. His name is Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite. He is from the tribe of Ephraim. Pirathon was in the uh, region of Ephraim. You see Shechem right here. Pirathon was right about at the end of the pen there from Shechem. What we know about this person was that he was a distinguished man of rank in society. How do we know that? Because we're told that he had 40 sons, all of whom rode donkeys, and 30 grandsons, all of whom rode donkeys. Well, you don't ride donkeys in those days unless you're a man of either power and or substance. Donkeys were the royal animal, basically, in effect, at that particular time. And so it's a statement of your place in society to claim that you have this many sons riding on donkeys. What we discover here is that he served for eight years as Shofat and that he was buried in Parathon. Not much of a memorial, is it? <laughs> what is interesting is Parathon will show up again. When we get to the days of David, we'll discover that David had a close core of men around him who were known as his 30 mighty men. And one of the greatest of those was Benaiah. And Benaiah was from Pirathon also. What can be confusing too in this passage are the last words of verse 15, where it says, it says that he was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. <laughs> what? What are Amalekites got to do with anything here? Well, the scripture often refers to a particular place by its previous possessors. Before Israel conquered the land, the Amalekites had lived in this area. They are not there now. They've been primarily driven out. But it is referring to the previous inhabitants of the land, not that it was the land of the Amalekites at the time of Abdon. After the death of Jephthah, you have Judge 9, Ibzan, you have Judge 10, Elon, and Judge 11, Abdon. They were responsible for keeping the northern part and the eastern part of Israel free from oppressors. That's all we can assume from this. They kept this part up here free from oppressors. But as we move on into the next chapter, we, discovered, we discover that this part was not free from oppression. 
In fact, that's the whole story of the next judge, whose name, of course, is Samson. So let's read the first few verses of chapter 13. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Philistines. Philistines were a very warlike people. They were one of the earliest iron-using people in this part of the world. They undoubtedly picked up their knowledge of iron use from the Hittites, who lived way up in what is today modern Turkey. They controlled the coast from the Brook Besor down here, which you barely can see on this map. It's, it's, a, it's a wadi. Only when it rains and a little water runs is there any creek there. Otherwise, it's a dry creek bed. All the way up here to Joppa. So this strip right on here was the Philistine Plain, and it's still often referred to as the Philistine Plain, uh, even today. The Philistines, they're, they're highly debated by scholars, uh, referring to the Philistines, uh, because they are originally encountered by Abraham long before the time that we're looking at today. Let me go back to the 26th chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis 26, verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. Now all of the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So here we have scriptural reference to the term Philistine. I believe, of course, in the inerrant scripture, especially in its, of course, autograph. And if it says Philistine, it means Philistine here. But there are some scholars who will come along and say, oh, it can't be Philistines because the Philistines didn't exist at the time of Abraham. They came much later. Well, maybe you just don't know about the intervening period. You know? The Philistines are said to have originally come from Asia Minor. They attacked Egypt and attempted to make headway there, but were repel repelled. And so they rebounded over here and established themselves along this coast of Palestine. And there are, they are um, encountering 
Isaac down here in the Negev, the, the dry steppe land in the south part of the land. This is where they are first encountered by Abraham and by Isaac. Eventually, they will settle in a series of cities along this coast here. You'll notice some of the cities. One of them, of course, is very well known today because it's the name of the Gaza Strip where the Palestinians are, have a homeland that connects across with the West Bank, at least in their mind. So they establish a five-city confederacy that is mentioned in Scripture. The Scripture mentions Gaza. It mentions Ashkelon and Ashdod. It mentions Ekron, and it mentions Gath. Of course, Gath will be the best-known one to us because Goliath is from Gath later on. And, of course, this is very near to where um, Samson will be born. Samson will be born just over here, just over the line, not very far from Gath in Israel, in the tribe, tribal area of Dan. And so Gath will play a role, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza, those will play a major role in the history of the life of Samson and then into Samuel and David's time. They attempted to establish a hegemony over Israel. The Philistines did. And they will continue to be a threat to Israel into the time of David. It will be David who will finally subdue them. So we're looking at a people now who are a threat to Israel for more than a hundred years. In this passage, we read in the first verse, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're referring, of course, to an apostasy that had already been described to us back in the 10th chapter. Because the 10th chapter is a fuller description of what we read here in verses 6 and 7. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, serving the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold him into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. So that is the apostasy being referred to here in the 13th chapter. So we need to think of chapters 10, 11, 12, 13 as being simultaneous chapters. These are events that are occurring at roughly the same time, all around the beginning of the 11th century before Christ, end of the 12th into the 11th century before Christ. God has allowed the Philistines to oppress the tribes of Dan, Judah, and Benjamin for the same reasons, reasons that he allowed the Ammonites to oppress the Gileadites and even cross the river against the tribe of Ephraim. Most likely, we're dealing with a simultaneous attack. The Ammonites are coming in from the east while the Philistines are coming in from the west. And Israel is being sandwiched in between. But there is not a united Israel. There is no government in Israel here. Every tribe is on its own. Every clan is on its own. And so it's only when they call together their own clan and their own tribe they go out to deal with the enemy. There, there is no standing army. There is no united government. It's tribal. And so this can easily be happening. They're fighting over here while they're fighting over here simultaneously against different peoples. As has been the case for many heroes of the faith, Samson was born in answer to the fervent prayers of a barren woman. We think of Isaac. We think of Jacob. We think of Joseph. We think of Samuel. We can think, of course, 
of John the Baptist. So it is in the case of Samson. Zorah was in the tribal area of Dan and just over the border from Philistia, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, and as I pointed out a minute ago, Zorah was right about up in there. So it's central, sort of a little bit west-central in Israel. This is in what is known as the Shephelah. You're out of the central highlands, but you're not out onto the plain yet. Israel has a coastal plain. It has a kind of a mountain valley area here called the Shephelah, and then the high country here, and then you drop into the Graben, the um, depressed area of the Jordan River and the, and the two seas. So if you look across from the ocean over here, the Mediterranean, you kind of go up like this and you go a little hilly country, then you go into the highlands and you boom, down the valley, then back up to another highland, then you taper off out into the desert uh, over, the, over here on this side. God sent an angel. How many times does God send angels? I don't think we even know how many times God sends angels. God sends angels, I believe, even today. Uh, not recorded in Scripture, of course, because Scripture has already been written. But he sends an angel to a woman who is not even named. She is only called the wife of Manoah. She is never named in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that means that it is meant to be derogatory of her at all. It's just the way the writer, under the inspiration of God, described it. Manoah's name means repose. <laughs> Somebody at repose. That's a great name. Sounds good, huh? <laughs> the angel came to her. We don't know how old she was, but this woman was probably a fairly well along in years. Maybe she was still within normal childbearing years. We, we don't know, but she had been barren for a very long time. And the angel comes and declares to her, you will bear a son and he will begin, notice the word, begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He doesn't say he will deliver Israel from the Philistines. It says he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. This particular passage in some ways is a foreshadowing of a similar event that we're much more familiar with that would occur over a thousand years later. When the angel Gabriel would appear to the young woman Mary, who of course was not a barren woman, obviously she wasn't even married at the time and she was very young, but he would announce to her that you will bear the deliverer, the Shofat, with the great capital S. Not one who would begin a deliverance, but the one who would complete deliverance. So Samson is a beginner. Christ is the completer. The boy who was to be born to Manoah's wife, we're told, was to be raised as a Nazarite. The word means consecrated one. Now let me read to you the law of the Nazarites, or at least a part of it, from the sixth chapter of Numbers. Beginning at verse 1, I'll just read a portion of this because the whole chapter is, almost the whole chapter is committed to this. Again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman takes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the vine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow, 
of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let his locks of hair grow on his head, uh, locks of hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to, the God, to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now, what you discover from that passage is this is a volitional consecration. Somebody is choosing to do this. Someone is saying, I want to dedicate myself to the Lord for the next year. And so in so doing, he takes the vow of a Nazarite. He allows his hair to grow long. He touches nothing, have, has nothing to do with grapes in any form. And, and he, you know, he does things that are very similar to priests and uh, Levites. This is the law of the Nazarite. It goes on to say some other things about it too. But you'll notice there is an end to it. And it says that when the days of his separation are over, he shall go to the priest and a sacrifice shall be made. He'll shave his hair off and be put on the sacrificial fire. And, and he's no longer bound by the Nazarite vow anymore. It's a volitional thing that people did as an expression of thanks to the Lord, as an expression of dedication to the Lord, whatever was the reason. Now, the word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means separated. It has nothing to do with the city of Nazareth. The city of Nazareth, the, the name is unclear as to its origin, is thought to come from the word Nazar, which means branch. And it also has nothing to do with the word Nazarene because the Naz word Nazarene simply means somebody from Nazareth. So we're not, we, we need not confuse those two. Jesus was the Nazarene. He came from Nazareth. He was not a Nazarite. The Nazarite vow was generally, as I was emphasizing in this passage, for a limited period. But what about the case of Samson? It was a lifetime commitment and it was not his choice. The angel said to his mother, he will be a Nazarite from the day of his birth to the day of his death. Whether he likes it or not, he will be a Nazarite. And of course, we notice <clears throat> as we read through the passage, he doesn't like it too much. He will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. His action will bring a great step in that direction. He will die, as we well know, killing a lot of Philistines. But the completion of the subjugation of the Philistines will not occur until Samuel is on the scene and then beyond that until David completes the task. Manoah's wife is alone when the angel comes to visit her. We might think, why didn't he come when Manoah was with his wife? It would save a lot of time. Manoah and his wife had undoubtedly agonized in prayer. Now, we, we in our society understand there are people who are hurting because they've never had any children, but their hurt in our society is not nearly the hurt of what it was like in the Israelite society because to them, it, it was the very point of life, at least for a married woman. It's the fountain of the future. It's, it's the carrying on of the name in, in a much greater sense than it is for us in our society today. And so they had prayed and prayed and prayed and years and years had passed and no answer had come. And then the angel shows up and Manoah's not there. So she quickly runs to find Manoah and to share the exciting news. And what's interesting is she describes the vision. She says, a man of God, 
appeared to me, who had the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Awesome. I think we just get a little tiny glimmer here because we're going to discover this is no normal angel. Again, this will be a theophany. She was so awestruck, she didn't even ask him any questions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What's your name? And what's interesting is he volunteers no information whatsoever. He doesn't say a thing about who he is. Just proclaim the message. She repeats the message to her husband and says, our son will not be normal. He will be a Nazarite from the day of his birth. Well, as typical for husband or maybe wife either way, who's seen a vision the other has not, it's kind of like, oh, well, <laughs> maybe I need a little confirmation here. <laughs> maybe the sun was beating on your head a little too long yesterday or today, you know, whatever. So uh, we have to move along, and, and Manoah will ask to see the angel too, and the angel will appear again to her while she's alone, and she has to go and get him and bring him back. And you, you wonder, why didn't the Lord just appear to him while they were both together? They were together a lot. <laughs> but there is a purpose in it all. It's just a curse, I mean, the same thing in general happened with Joseph and Mary. Uh, why didn't he appear to them at the same time? Yeah. With John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It obviously is a faith-building thing. It has to do with building the faith, confidence, and, and a real sense that this is of God. Well, we're going to move on into the chapter, not today, because we're running out of time, but... John, how about to give value to the woman that angel would appear to her separate from her husband? Absolutely, yeah. And help him to understand that she's a worthy person of, of God visiting her first. Let, then bringing her husband along. Maybe keeping his, his head a little smaller. The ladies <laughs> did better than the men. Zechariah was struck dumb after nine months. <laughs> he didn't believe it in some way. Well, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. It does seem that ladies have a quicker tendency to believe things in the spiritual realm than men do. 